think it was about five o'clock yesterday evening when Brother Aaron called me. Up to that point, he had been holding out hope that he was going to be able to, to be here. And so as we talked, I asked him um, if maybe he needed a better nurse. And I, I questioned her bedside manner, but he was very quick to defend Miss Leslie. So he was, he, was, he was very pleased with the nursing care that he had gotten, at least at home. I don't know about the hospital, but, um, and he was very eager for the Chick-fil-A soup that she was going to get to get home so that it could go into the blender and then he so you know normally I say how glad I am to be here and I am glad to be here I'm just not glad I'd rather he be gone for a Bulgarian mission trip than for this reason this morning I want us to think about revival and of course when we think about revival we think about as Good Baptist, a series of, of services, but that's not really the biblical definition of revival, although it does pain my heart that it seems like so many churches are moving away from having revivals. The older I've got, it seems like the less of an emphasis there is on that, and I really find myself just becoming an old guy who complains about the way things are these days, it seems like. But Revival, we hope, happens at a national level. We hope it happens at a state level. We hope it happens at a church level, certainly. We hope that it happens, most of all, in our own lives and in our own homes because that's what has to happen if there is going to be revival. Revival always begins with one person. Today, I want us to think about, of course, the verse that we think about more than any other when we're thinking about revival, and that is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. But I've learned over the years that sometimes people think, well, that's, that's really an Old Testament type of thing. And the whole idea of revival is something where you know, we focus too much on sin and we focus too much on repentance and we focus too much on coming back to God. But I recently tried to answer the question for myself, does the New Testament really talk about revival? We don't see that phrase, but what we're going to do this morning is we're going to be looking just very briefly at James chapter 1, and then most of what we're going to look at is in James chapter 4. Some of those verses are verses that some of you have heard me refer to many times. Some of you have heard sermons from me on those verses because James is so practical and is so relevant to our lives. Let's think about Second Chronicles chapter 7. Verse 14, you could probably say it by memory. Why don't we do that? If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
and turned from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Do we think our land, do we think our country needs to be healed? This morning, as we think about revival, I want us to ask ourselves five questions. Five questions that are going to determine whether or not we experience revival in our own lives and possibly in our church and in our nation. Five questions that line up both with Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, and the verses that we're going to see in James chapter 1 and James chapter 4. The first point that I want us to think about has to do with who this promise was for. The promise was for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And you know what had just happened there in Second Chronicles chapter 7. The glory of the Lord had filled the temple. There were great things happening. God had visited them in a way that was unusual. A once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience. And then, what's the promise that's given? The promise is, it's not always going to be this good. When bad things happen, when you're in the valley instead of on the mountaintop, when bad things happen, then here is a promise that you can always come back to. For my people, if you'll do this, if you'll respond to who God is in this way, then you can know that God is going to do what he said he would do. God is a promise keeper. So, the first question that I want us to think about is the question, are you different? Are you different? Where is that coming from? Well, it comes from the fact that in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, this promise was given to who? My people which are called by my name. And you know what that meant? That meant for the Jewish people that they were going to be circumcised. That meant that they were going to eat different foods. That meant that they were going to worship a different God. That meant that everything about them was going to be different from any of the other people around them. We know that God intended for the people of Israel to be different. In the same way, God intends for us to be different. Look at James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So who is it written to? When he says the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, he's talking about Christians, and he's talking about Christians who are persecuted. And then in verse 2, he says, My brethren. My brethren. Later on in chapter 4, we're going to see that he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. And what he's saying is, I'm talking to Christians. Christians. 
You know what? Could it be that one reason that we don't experience revival and it's been so long since we've had any kind of nationwide revival, could it be because too many of us folks who are in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday think of revival as people in the world getting right? That we think about other people getting right with God when actually it is the Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. It is the loyal people. It is the tithers. It is those who are going to be there no matter what. That is really where revival begins. It's those who then take it the extra step that are going to be the ones that show that God is their God. In James chapter 4, verse 4, that's where he says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. When we think about that, we have to understand God is calling for us to be different. We know the scriptures. We know that the Bible says that we are a peculiar people, right? Some of y'all are just more peculiar than others. But have you ever thought about back early on in the Gospels when Luke was, was writing about the baptism of Jesus? John the Baptist had flocks of people. I guess people can be in flocks, can't they? He had crowds of people that were coming for baptism. And it was pretty remarkable that the Jews were coming to be baptized. Because did you realize, you know, we think of baptism as something that's pretty standard. We're familiar with it. But for them, a Jew would have had no need to be baptized. The only kind of baptism that they knew at that time was what we think of as proselyte baptism. And that was when a Gentile wanted to become a Jew. They would go through several steps, and one of those steps was they would be baptized. So for the Jews that were hearing John the Baptist preaching repentance and saying, come and be baptized, it was a totally foreign concept for them, but it was also something that would have required them to really humble themselves because in that mind, if you had been a good Jew back in that day, you know what you would have thought? You would have thought, why in the world do I need to be baptized? Because baptism is for Gentiles. The unclean people. The lowest of the low. So that Jewish person who was baptized was being called by God in a way that was very different for them. It doesn't matter whether you're called into the ministry or whether you're called to work in a factory. 
It doesn't matter where God places you. God expects his people to be different. We're identified by him. Did you know that is the most important relationship that you have in your life? Some of you have been married to your spouse for a very long time. Some of you have been married to your spouse longer than they've been married to you. At least that's what I tell people when they ask me how long Kristen and I have been married. My response is me or her. Because I tell everybody she gets time and a half. Um, Is that how it works at your house, Leslie? So we've got some awfully important relationships. I had somebody show me some pictures this morning of a great grandchild. Some of y'all like your grandkids, don't you? So, we always have to worry when we start hearing voices from the back of the church, don't we? (laughs) But you can think about the most important relationships in your lives. And there is no relationship that matters like our relationship with our God. We are defined by that relationship. And you know what? The closer you get to God, the more different you're going to be. The more different you're going to be from the world. And I'm not telling you to be weird. I mean, I can't help it. I just, that's just the way God made me. But it doesn't, different doesn't mean weird. Different means we're marching to a different beat because the Holy Spirit is the one setting the beat of our hearts. Are you different? Do you have that relationship with God? Is that relationship with God what's driving your life? And that leads to the next point. Let's think about Second Chronicles seven fourteen. My people who are called by my name will first do what? Humble themselves. Our favorite word. What can be better than humbling ourselves? But look at chapter 4 of James. Chapter 4, verse 7. Verse 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. My question is, are you dedicated? And by dedicated, I don't mean dedicated like we are to a diet that we're on, a workout plan or exercise plan that we're on, a study plan. I'm talking about, are we dedicated to God? When you placed your faith in him, when you were saved, you gave him lordship of your life. You said that my life is going to be one that is lived in submission to him. But the Bible tells us that we have to daily take up our cross. We have to submit ourselves to him over and over and over and over. It is a continual process and that is why revival is so necessary. We must submit ourselves to him. 
Friends, it's no accident that in verse 7 it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That order is no accident. We cannot resist the devil until we have submitted ourselves to God. Once we have submitted ourselves to God, then it is his spirit that wins the victory and causes the devil to flee from us just like the devil fled when the devil tempted Jesus the three times in the wilderness. But look at also at verse 10 as we think about being dedicated. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. We're told to submit ourselves. We're told to humble ourselves. Somehow, I saw something as I was preparing this sermon that I hadn't really noticed before. Maybe I'd noticed but hadn't thought about. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. That confused me a little bit. Why does it say in the sight of the Lord? Why didn't it just say humble yourselves and the Lord will lift you up? Humble yourselves before the Lord. Later on, we're going to see that we're told to seek his face, and we'll talk about that, and that really goes along with this as well. But in the sight of the Lord, do we ever make eye contact with God? How often do we think about the fact that God is watching everything we do? That we are always in God's sight. That's the part that confused me. I thought, well, is it me seeing God? Is it God seeing me? Is there ever a time when God doesn't see me? Of course, we know that there's never a time when God doesn't see us. Yesterday, um, we went to Vicksburg, but before we left, I went in the bedroom and started getting ready. This was mid-afternoon yesterday, and... um, Guanya's been home for spring break, so I'm in the bathroom getting ready. Kristen's in the bathroom getting ready, and Guanya sends us a text. Why do y'all do that? Why do y'all send a text to somebody who's in the same house with you? You know you do it. Sometimes I'll be at the house and I'm in a different room, and I get text, and I look to see who it's from. It's from Kristen. I'm in the living room. She's in the bedroom. What are you doing? But we got a text from Guanya sent to both of us, and it was a picture of the chair, the recliner that I had just gotten out of because I was doing what you do in March. I was watching basketball, and Abe... My over 100-pound yellow lab was in that recliner. Well, some of y'all are thinking that's no big deal, but we got new furniture about a year or so ago, and we'd gotten in the habit where the dogs would get on the furniture, but with this new furniture, the dogs were no longer allowed on the furniture. And normally, there are pillows. 
I don't know where all these pillows came from, but there are pillows stacked everywhere. And then there's like, for the recliner, there's what was my dad's handmade walking stick that's on top of the pillow. And then there's other stuff, poles, because they got to where they would just jump up and all three of them would jump up and just sit on the pillows. Pillows were no deterrent, so we had to have something else up there too. But I had gotten up from my recliner and I did not put that pillow back in there and I didn't put that walking stick back on top of the pillow and Abe was just having a relaxing Saturday afternoon and he jumped up in the recliner. He was not in my sight, but he was in Guanya's sight and every phone has a camera, so he was quickly found out. And it's kind of funny. Kristen, I realized after this happened, sent Guanya a text and said, come see. I guess, you know, it was the best entertainment was to see what I was going to do and how Abe was going to react. And so I walk up behind the recliner and I say Abe's name louder than you have ever heard my voice. And I saw him from behind where he just cringed. It reminded me of the time when he was a puppy that I kept hearing Kristen yelling at him. I'd already gone to bed, and I came out. He had a pillow that he had grabbed, and he didn't quite respect Kristen as much as he respected me, you know, the whole mom-dad thing. So he was going to be more disobedient with her, and he had this game going where he grabbed this pillow, and he was going to keep it from her. And at first, when I walk out there, Kristen is standing between me and the dog. And then when I say something, she turns around, and suddenly I'm in the line of sight of that dog. And he drops the pillows in his mouth, and he drops the pillow, and his mouth just hangs open. Like, where did you come from? Well, that was the same thing that happened yesterday. He's looking at me like, okay, what do I do? And I could almost see him thinking, if I make a move now, he's going to think that I wasn't supposed to be there, so maybe if I just stay, he'll kind of back off, he'll change his mind. That did not happen. It took me saying his name a few times before he started moving. And then I grabbed his collar and helped him down. But it made all the difference in the world when he knew that I was standing right there. Isn't that the way it is with us and God? We're not, it's not my nature to submit. It's not my nature to humble myself. When you're driving down the interstate, don't you just love it when you, you know, you're trying to get somewhere in a hurry and you're coming into Pearl and the speed limit drops, and you think, yes, I love it when the speed limit drops, and I get to slow down, especially since we know what the Pearl Police are like. They love the fact so many people don't realize the speed limit drops right there. Y'all send this on to the Pearl PD. That's okay. They'll be watching for me. But we don't like having to bring our lives 
into submission. It's not our nature. But when we know we are in the sight of God, then we remember who we are, that we're supposed to be different. We remember that we're, dedic- that we're to be dedicated. The offering was mentioned earlier. When you give your offering, don't ever just be in the habit of writing a check. Make it an act of worship and make it a reminder that you are not just giving a monetary offering, but that what we are doing is every time we give an offering, we're saying to God, God, I am offering myself to you. I want to be solely dedicated to you. Let's move on to our third question. In case you're wondering how many there are, there are five. I know y'all get a little nervous because it's not been that long ago that I preached here and we had nine points, but we, we don't this morning. Only five. Isn't that good? So, are you different? Are you dedicated? And are you desire-driven? Where am I, where am I getting that? It's from the word pray. Look at what James said about our prayer life. From where, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. So first we see the the sin of not praying. Then you ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. That's what I'm talking about about being desire-driven. When the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 to pray, it's not saying, pray, Lord, make my life easier. Lord, make my life pleasant. Lord, rescue us. What he's saying is, pray in the will of God. First, prayer is so neglected But then prayer can become just selfish prayers. I love the acrostic that I saw a few years ago. I'm pretty sure that was the first time I ever saw it. You know, we've all seen the acrostic acts as a guide to prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. But I really like this one that I came across. That's the word pray. And what it is, is praise. Repent. Ask. And yield. Think about that for a minute. Praise. That matches up with the Acts acrostic of adoration. We want 
to adore God. We want to praise God. We want to start our prayers the right way. When we pray, how much time do we really spend just enjoying God's presence and letting Him know how wonderful He is? And then, before we've asked for anything, we're confessing our sin, and we're doing more than just confessing our sin. There's the actual act of repentance where we're turning from our sin. And then, it's only after we've praised and we've repented that we then ask, because at that point, guess what's happened? Our heart is right. If we start praying and our heart's not right, what's going to happen? It's just like when you have a conversation with your spouse and your heart's not right. What's going to happen? It's not going to be pretty for us poor guys. I mean, it's not going to be pretty for anybody. But when our heart's not right, we're going to ask for the wrong things. We're going to ask in the wrong way, and our prayers are going to lose their power. But when we praise and when we repent and when we ask, then... There's the word yield. We yield to his will. We yield to what he has shown us in our lives. You see, James paints a picture of people who are living for their desires. They want to consume God's blessings on their lusts. But instead... We begin to experience revival when we say, Lord, whatever your will is, that is what I want. Someone said something, this is a paraphrase, but we know our heart is right when we're willing to sacrifice what we think of as our greatest blessings. Think about that. We know our heart's right when we're so committed to the will of God that whatever God wants is what we want. And we'd even be willing to give up what we think of as our greatest blessings. Maybe it's our health. Maybe it's our health because through that experience, God is going to be able to work to accomplish his will. So many different areas of our lives where that can make the difference. We know the Bible teaches that there is a war between our spirit and our flesh. It's when our desires drive what we do that we are controlled by the flesh. It's when God's will drives our lives that we are controlled by the spirit. Are you different? Are you dedicated? Are you desire-driven? The fourth question for us this morning as we think about revival is, are you drawing near? 2 Chronicles chapter 7 says, Seek my face. Abe yesterday did not want to look me in the eye. And I've, I've told you before about my daughter. And of course, her method of communication is sign language. And we quickly learned that when Guanya wasn't happy with us, when she didn't want to hear what we had to say, can you imagine that happening with a teenager or a young adult? 
man. Do you know what she would do? It was real easy. All she had to do was refuse to make eye contact. Because if she couldn't see us, we couldn't communicate to her. It just when she would do that, it reminded me of the little kid that would put his hands in his ear, fingers in his not his hands, his fingers in his ears, and say, "I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I can't hear you." You've had a child do that before, hadn't you? Do you think God ever looks at us and looks at us like we're that child with their fingers in their ears? Isn't that what happens sometimes? We think, God, I want you to be there if I need you. But I don't want to seek your face. Because if we seek his face, what are we doing? We're drawing near to God. Look at verse 8 of chapter 4 of James. Draw near to God and he will draw nigh to you. you want to see God, if you want to hear God, if you want to know God, God is going to help you to do that. He will draw near to us. But then the rest of verses 8 and 9 will also happen. What happens when we see God's face? We're going to see our sin. And the right response to seeing God's face is the rest of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Double-minded is just that battle between the flesh and the spirit. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. That's not what we want. Brokenness is always going to happen as a part of revival. Brokenness is not something that we want. It's not comfortable. It's not pleasant. I don't think any of us would say, I sure hope I get to mourn today. I hope I get to weep today. Man, I'm tired of laughing and smiling all the time. I I want today to be a day when I just am overwhelmed with grief. We don't sign up for that. We don't want that. Turn your joy to heaviness. We want joy. But when our relationship is what it ought to be with God... The things that burden God's heart are going to be what burdens our heart. We're going to grieve over sin the way God grieves over sin. We're going to grieve for lost people the way that God grieves for lost people. We're going to grieve over wandering Christians, complacent Christians. We're going to grieve over the need for revival just like God grieves for the need for revival. 
Do we want to seek God's face or do we just want to be like Abe and enjoy the comfort of the recliner? Do you want to say to God, God, I want to see your face no matter what that means. Change my priorities, change my plans, change my desires. And that leads us to the last question. Are you different? Are you dedicated? Are you desire-driven or spirit-driven? Are you drawing near? You know, you can come to worship. You can come to church. You can sing hymns. You can bring an offering. You can pray. You can hear a sermon. Or you can hear a sermon that's long enough you think it's two sermons like you do when, when I'm here. Or you can really draw near to God. Because see, none of that really requires you to draw near to God. You can go through the motions all day long. But you'll know that it's been worship when you deny yourself. That's the last question. Are you denying yourself? Warren Wearsby said, praise is looking to God, looking up to God. Worship is bowing down before God. Are you denying yourself? Do we have bowed knees? And more importantly than that, bowed hearts. When we draw near to God, He floods our life. That's God's plan. His life, I mean, His, his desire is for every part of our life to be completely under His control under his will we can't shut off rooms from God we can't shut off parts of our life from God it has to all be for God as we look at James chapter 4 and as we think about denying ourselves I want us to again hear what I have told you before is my least favorite verse in all the Bible Verse 17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. I say that's my least favorite verse, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, because as a teenager, that's the verse that knocked me upside the head that caused me to have to realize, Jeff, you may think you have great plans for your life, but your plans for your life aren't what matters. What matters is God's plan for your life. And it suddenly hit me that Christianity is not a list of don'ts. It is a list of do's. It is not about checking boxes. It is about a relationship And in that relationship, we have a God who is going to show us what he wants us to do. He shows us 
in, our, in His Word. Our lives must never contradict His Word. He shows us as He guides us by His Spirit. As His Spirit leads us. When the Holy Spirit shows us that we ought to be doing something and we don't do it, that is just as much a sin as if you were to commit murder. So what does that mean? That means that what I learned when that verse knocked me upside the head as a teenager is true for the rest of my life. That the only way I please God is by doing what God shows me I should do. And that means at times that I am going to have to deny myself. That's a clear command that we have in the New Testament in the words of Jesus. We must deny ourselves. God's made us to be different. God's desire is for us to be dedicated or set apart for Him. God's desire is for us to be controlled by the Spirit and not controlled by our own flesh. God's desire is for us to continue day after day after day, not just on Sunday, but every day of our lives to draw near to Him. And then as we draw near to Him and as He shows us His will for our lives, His desire is for us to deny self. Because the only way we deny self is when we say yes to Jesus. Saying yes to Jesus is about more than salvation. It's about lordship. It is a never-ending process of all throughout our lives saying yes to Jesus. Could it be all that's going to take for revival to happen in your life and in my life is for us to say to God, the answer is yes. I don't know what the question is, but the answer is yes. Whatever you want to ask me, God, the answer is yes. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we serve a Savior who has died on the cross for us, that we serve a Savior who makes it possible for us to be saved, that we serve a Savior who has shown us how to live, and how to die. Help us, Father, to be willing to live for Jesus and to die for Jesus. And Father, help us to die to self. We need revival. Lord, maybe my greatest prayer is that we would understand that we don't need to pray that other people are revived. We need to pray that we're revived. We desperately need you to do that in our lives. Stir us, Father. Break our hearts. Whatever it is that you need to do to send revival. To send revival to our homes. 
to this church, to the other churches in this community, to our state, to our nation, to our world. Lord, we pray that you would send revival. Help us, Father, to wrestle with these questions and to let you show us how you see the answers in our lives. Work, Father, in our lives to make us useful to you, make us pleasing to you. We praise you, Father. We love you. Father, during this time of invitation, we pray that you would speak to hearts. Show us what you want us to do. Give us the courage and the grace to obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing hymn number...